I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning. The book of Philippians with me. As we uh, work our way through the next passage of Scripture, uh, this sermon will be a bit shorter than usual. I know that's whatever preacher promises, right? Uh, but we are going to be partaking in the Lord's table as well together today, and that'll be a great way to follow up uh, the text of uh, this sermon. As we uh, come to Philippians chapter 3, we come to a rare expression of Paul where he uses the word finally in 3 and verse 1. Um, That word is common enough in many English translations, but the expression behind it is a word that he doesn't use very frequently. Uh, He uses it in 3.1 here, and then he uses it again in Philippians Philippians 4 in verse 8. He's got two finally, sounds like a preacher. Uh, Two final points, but uh, finally. Uh, That marks out a section for us. I think that this section of the book, Philippians 1, or 3, 1 through 4, 7, right before that second, finally, gives to us uh, another major section where Paul describes our mindset, our way of thinking. Our way of thinking is definitely on his mind because three times in, in this section, again, he calls our attention, uh, the, the attention of the Philippians to a mindset. If you look in Philippians 3 and verse 15, for instance, uh, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Then you look down in chapter 3 and verse 19, he'll use a, a different form of the same word. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Then again in chapter 4 and verse 2, when he talks about Yodia and Syntyche, he says that he's entreating them to have the same mind, or as the ESV translates, to agree in the Lord. And so we, we have another section about our thinking, our mindset. But in chapter 3, in the first part of chapter 4, the emphasis isn't on the word unity, it's not on the word humility, It's not even on the word gospel per se, but the sort of mindset that Paul would have us focus on is a Christ-centered mindset. We know that because of all of the references to Jesus in chapters 3 and 4. As a matter of fact, you don't have to look very far into your text. In chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And I think that that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, is is the driving proposition or theme of this section. I don't know how many of you like uh, teaching, public teaching, or speaking. Um, It was kind of fun for me to walk through uh, all of the salvation testimonies with the new members uh, last Sunday night and get them prepared for that. You know, you find all sorts of different people when it comes to giving public testimony. Some people just really can't stand that at all. Uh, But uh, one of the things you'll learn about public speaking, perhaps uh, at least uh, what they've told me, what the experts have told me, is that normally with public speaking, you need some sort of driving emphasis or main proposition. In sermons, preachers will, will often call it your sermon or some sermonic proposition. What is your one main point that you want to deal with again and again? I remember one of the first times I was invited to speak or to preach in front of a large group of people. Um, I had had one preaching class in my entire life. 
and it really wasn't even a good one, to be honest with you. I remember every time I spoke or preached in the class, I preached three times. The instructor was an older man, and he fell asleep in the back of the class. So I really didn't get a lot of feedback. Well, for some reason, I was selected as one of the young men who would preach in a sermon competition, competition of all things, at a Bible college, at our, at our Bible college. And so, you know, I thought I knew how to preach. I remember uh, we, had, uh, we had gotten a new faculty member, though, and this guy really taught preaching. I didn't have him as an instructor, but he was, uh, he was really into teaching young guys how to preach. And so they asked the three of us who'd be preaching in the competition, they said, we want you to practice in front of this new instructor in the Bible faculty, and so you could go to this small lounge and preach a sermon. I remember trying to preach through my sermon. I got about 10 minutes into it, and this instructor stood up in this room, and he said, young man, what is your proposition? I said, proposition? He says, you know, your one main point. I said, uh, one? I said, well, you know, I've got like 10 really good ones here. <laughs> what is your one main point? In giving a sermon or public speaking, sometimes you need to have one driving proposition. The driving proposition of chapters 3 and 4 is this phrase, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in Christ. So to emphasize the importance of keeping Christ at the center of our minds, Paul describes in this text Two ways people might respond to Christ in verses 1 through 7. And we have really in this text interwoven our right and wrong ways to respond to Jesus. Um, Let's look at chapter 3 and verse 1. I'll read the whole text for us this morning. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture and look at it briefly, I pray that you would help us see that we must keep our boasting and confidence in the work of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, in these verses, as we go through them quickly, I'm going to look at right and wrong approaches to Christ. In this text, Paul will often talk about his opponents, some opponents that were coming to Philippi, who were replacing Christ with their own works. But then he uses that as an opportunity to also discuss the fact that genuine believers don't do that. Genuine believers boast only in the Lord. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I've got four points. Uh, First, 
Genuine believers boast in the Lord, verse 1. In verse 1, Paul gives this brief and important phrase. As I said, it's the driving proposition, rejoice in the Lord. It's an important phrase. It's more important than its length. You can see that it's important because this is a command. It's an imperative, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, The word rejoice, though, probably means something like a combination of both joy and confidence. So it's something like take joyful confidence in the Lord. I think this statement controls all of chapters 3 and 4 because he not only says it here, he says it again. He repeats it for emphasis in Philippians 4.4 when he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So like good preaching, as he sits down to write this epistle, he gives his main point over and over again. In case you missed it before, let me tell you again, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So these verses, chapters 3 and the first part of chapter 4, are about rejoicing in Jesus alone. He is the bedrock of our confidence and joy as a believer. As you keep reading in verse 1, he continues by saying that, uh, writing and and saying that rejoicing in Christ is, is not at all wearisome to him. This is not a difficult theme for him to continue to call them to boast in. And, uh, and, and then he says, and he uses the words, uh, the same things, to write the same things. I think the same things could refer back to that phrase, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things about rejoicing like I've done throughout this book and rejoicing in the Lord like I just mentioned in verse 1 is no trouble to me. And it is safe for you. So Paul, as he sits down to write this section of Philippians, he just doesn't close it out. He says, okay, I'm going to keep writing these things about rejoicing in Jesus, rejoicing or boasting in him alone because it's a safeguard for you. It will protect you. This word safe uh, means it's, it, it's a strong word where Paul says he's basically describing the fact it would be dangerous for believers to quit doing this, to boasting or taking great confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine believers boast in Jesus. They boast in the Lord. That leads him in verses 2 and 3 to begin to describe self-righteous people, the other way people might respond to Jesus. Self-righteous people often boast in their own accomplishments. Look in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In verse 2, Paul tells us that we need to be on the defensive against some of his opponents. He tells the Philippians this. And uh, I think one of the questions we should ask here is, who are these people? I mean, he says three times, look out for them, be aware of them, but who are they? Well, in the text, he describes them in a few ways. He says, first of all, that they are dogs. You see that description of them? Beware of the dogs. With this description, Paul uses a strong word. It's a word uh, that, that would be used of, of normal canines in the first century. It's a word that would indicate vileness. Okay? I, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind is that uh, our picture of domesticated dogs is not what he has in, in, in mind here. Okay? He's not 
uh, describing the huggable, the huggable, lovable sort of pets that we have as companions in our culture. But in the first century in Jewish culture, dogs were some of the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures. Now, don't get mad at me if you're a dog lover. I'm just doing the historical research. They didn't like dogs at all. And one of the reasons they, dogs were despised is because they would, go, they would go in packs and they would eat anything. They'd feed off of street garbage, animal carcasses, and a bunch of other filthy things I'm not even going to get into. And so the term dogs came to, came to be used in a metaphorical way to describe the outcasts of society as well. As a matter of fact, the Jews would use this term to describe the Gentiles because of their eating practices. Look at those dogs. They'll eat anything that serves them. They're not concerned about kosher foods. They're not concerned about ceremonial, ceremonial clean foods. They'll eat anything. They're dogs. But Paul flips the term, and I think he uses it on some Jewish opponents that he has run across in his day. And he says, you know, you beware of the dogs. He's describing Jewish false teachers here. That becomes obvious in his second description of them as well. They're evildoers. Interestingly enough, the word evildoers would be a term that the Gentiles, or that Jews would often use to describe the Gentiles as well. You see, they don't obey the law of Moses. They don't do the works of the law of Moses. They are evildoers. We are good doers. We are good workers or workers of righteousness because we obey the law of Moses. So again, Paul flips the term and uses it on some Jewish false teachers who were not boasting in Jesus. So Paul says, be on the watch, look out in Philippi for dogs, for evildoers. And then he also describes these false teachers as mutilators. Mutilators. They're the false circumcision. And with this word, Paul is describing the fact that these Jewish false opponents were aggressive false teachers who were attempting to require circumcision of their followers. Paul responds, however, by saying that these opponents were like pagans, these Jewish false teachers obsessed with physical circumcision. They're like pagans who are trying to gain favor by physically mutilating themselves. They're as good as pagans. With these three descriptions, Paul, I think, would rhetorically shock the Philippian readers. There's all sorts of reasons, I think, that the threefold repetition of the strong word, look out, look out, look out. All three of these descriptions all start with a kappa in Greek too, and so he, with the, the letter chi. And so he's, he's just kind of... Uh, he's, he's kind of, I think, really trying to uh, grab their attention Uh, here in this passage. Paul is probably describing some Jewish opponents that he has faced either in Rome or throughout his missionary journey. I don't think these Jewish false teachers have made it to Philippi yet, but he calls upon them to beware lest they come and destroy this church. If you're looking down in your Bible at verse 3, he continues a description. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul had called his opponents false circumcision, and the reason he calls them that is because he has someone else in mind when he thinks of the true circumcision. 
Instead of the Jews being the people that God accept because of their physical circumcision, Paul explains that those who follow Christ are that now the true circumcision, in verse 3. And he describes a little bit more of what he means by who are the true circumcision with the next three verses in that phrase, or in that, uh, the next three phrases in that verse. When uh, he begins to describe this true circumcision, this group of believers as those who worship truly by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit empowers the service of genuine believers and their worship. This is genuine, vibrant, living worship, not dead worship. I think we can discover more about what he means by those who worship by the Spirit of God, by seeing the next two phrases. I think he's describing who these people are, those who are genuinely followers of Christ, who worship by the Spirit of living God. Um, Let me state it positively and negatively. Well, they're the ones glorying in Christ Jesus. See this in in your Bible, Philippians 3 and verse 3, they're glorying in Christ Jesus. That is, they are boasting or priding themselves in Jesus Christ. Genuine believers see that Jesus is the basis and the object of their boasting. Those who worship in the right way through the power of the Holy Spirit proclaim that Jesus is the basis of their acceptance. I think the mention of Jesus again in this passage should remind us that this text is about the centrality of Christ in our mindset. And true believers, genuine believers, must not allow any smooth talkers or any loud, arrogant preachers to draw their attention off of Christ, to look at or become obsessed with personal acts of self-righteousness. For on the flip side, genuine believers finally, the text says in 3.3, last phrase, they put no confidence in the flesh. The self-righteous opponents of Paul in Rome or in his missionary journeys who may be making their, their ways to Philippi measured themselves against the yardstick of the law of Moses. And they felt that they measured up. They put confidence, as this text says, in flesh. You see that? In flesh which is perhaps an allusion, again, to the circumcision of the flesh. But Paul uses the word flesh here in verses 3 and 4 many times. He uses it three times here, which is more than he uses in the rest of the book combined. I think he does this to clearly demonstrate that boasting in flesh, in our own human achievements, our own human initiatives and accomplishments, is completely and utterly foolish. Genuine believers put no confidence in the flesh. Make a quick application for some within the audience here today. Perhaps, uh, you know, as, as I would address you, uh, perhaps you're here today and you have never made a profession of saving faith in Jesus Christ. So I would address you, I would suggest uh, to you that your unrighteousness will damn you. It will damn you. 
to hell. But might I also say that your unrighteousness might not as quickly or thoroughly damn you as much as your righteousness will. These opponents of the Apostle Paul were blinded by all of their works, all of their activities, all of their ceremonial privileges and accomplishments to seeing the fact that Jesus was the only solution for them. And Paul says that while they boast in their own accomplishments, they're, they're damned. And they're as foolish as pagans who cut themselves with knives trying to please God. These Jewish false teachers are condemned. He continues to describe them in verses 4 through 6. We'll go quickly through here. When uh, I would describe it this way, self-righteous people also boast in their own pedigree. Look at verse 4. It says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. What Paul does here is he begins to compare himself to some of his Jewish opponents. And basically, you know, challenging them in some ways to a contest. You know, if you want to boast in our own pedigree, our own accomplishments, let me give you a catalog of seven things that I could boast in. And he, he works down through this text. He says, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says, if you want to talk about circumcision, let me just tell you, I'm an eighth dayer. Which be, would be a way for Jewish people to brag about their ceremonial upbringing even outside of, outside of his own control, as a young baby, he said, my parents got it right. I'm an eighth day circumcised. I'm of the race of Israel. If these opponents want to boast in that, I can do that as well. If they want to boast in being of a special tribe, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Of course, the tribe of Benjamin had special honors because Benjamin was born to the son of Jacob's favored wife, Rachel. He was one of two sons born to Rachel. And the first king of Israel came out of the tribe of Benjamin, not to mention the fact that the holy city of Jerusalem was located in the tribe or in the land allotted to Benjamin. Benjamin had much to be proud of. And if you were a part of his tribe, you could boast in that. Paul said, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which probably means or speaks of the purity of his bloodline. I'm a Hebrew person born to Hebrew people. There's no Gentile blood in my line. If we want to boast in our own pedigree, Paul says, with regards to the law, I'm just working right down through the text, with regards to the law, I'm a Pharisee. We don't have the time to look at, at what a Pharisee meant and how they approached the law. Let me just say, though, that they, these were the, the step counters on the Sabbath days. These are the ones who formally practiced the Sabbath well. They obeyed the law and they held other people accountable as well. Paul says, if you want to talk about obeying the law, it's a Pharisee. In other texts, we learn that he was taught by one of the great Pharisees of his day, Gamaliel. Paul's taught by Gamaliel as a Pharisee. With regards to the law, he's, he's a Pharisee. With regards to zeal, Paul says, I greatly persecuted the church. Whereas Gamaliel might have been a little soft in Acts 5, he doesn't persecute or destroy the apostles. Paul had more zeal or fervor to push forward and persecute this branch of Jewish people who were claiming that their Messiah was Jesus Christ. Paul says, you want to talk about fervor? 
of great zeal, and that zeal is seen in my persecution of the church. And then you want to talk about righteousness from the law? Paul says the word you could use to describe me there would be blameless. I don't think Paul believed that he was sinless before he was saved, but I think what he's saying here is, if other people, other people would look at me, they wouldn't be able to find an external way in which I did not obey the law of Moses. I'm above reproach or blameless when it comes to the law when, from other people's perspective. As Paul looks around at the fleshly boasts of other Jews, he says that he can compete with any of them. Paul's opponents foolishly boast in their own accomplishments and pedigree, and they can't even compare to him. Moment of application here again, may I implore you, uh, men and women, uh, especially believers here, not to take pride in flesh as believers. We must be careful to avoid taking pride in our religion or our religious rituals. Uh, The Israelites had many practices like Sabbath celebrations and circumcisions that became a stumbling block that kept them from boasting in Jesus of Nazareth. Their badges of honor were things like Sabbath-keeping, circumcisions, eating kosher foods, synagogue sermons, but these things kept them from accepting and putting joy and confidence in the completed work of Jesus Christ. As I was meditating upon some of these Jewish opponents, uh, I was thinking of the book of Hebrews this week. I say, you know, these people let the blood of bulls and goats keep them from accepting and putting confidence in the blood of the sinless Lamb of God, the Son of God, who died for them. But we can let our own works and religious heritage keep us from boasting in Jesus as well. We must, we must choose, if we must choose between boasting about our religious practices and traditions or boasting in Jesus, we must always, always Choose Christ. Don't brag about your standards of dress, worship methods, preferences, giving records, church affiliations. Put all of your confidence in Christ. It's my desire that as men and women in this community, perhaps our neighbors just across the road or in this area here, that they would know that we are Jesus people that we love Jesus. I don't want you to lead with the fact that you're like even something as good as maybe being a Baptist. Okay. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a Baptist. I don't want you to run around with your chest puffed out bragging to everyone you know, well, I'm a Baptist. And I'm not any kind of Baptist, any particular kind of Baptist. I'm a special kind of Baptist. I'm an independent Baptist. You ever been around people who boast in perhaps the wrong sorts of things with the laws? I'm an independent Baptist, or, you know, and I'm not just any kind of independent Baptist. I'm an independent Baptist who preaches from particular types of versions of Scripture. Like the 
ESV. The New American Standard. I'm an ESV preaching independent Baptist. And not only am I an ESV preaching independent Baptist, I'm one of those sort of Baptists who believes in a grace philosophy of ministry and the grace essentials. I mean, even as good as those things are, I don't want people necessarily identifying us in that way as much as they would identify us with Jesus. That we would be Jesus people, boasting and rejoicing in him. Take your confidence in Christ. Listen, you will not be accepted by God because of the grace essentials. Or your standards of dress or music or your records of church attendance or your giving records. Here, God, look at these. You will only be accepted because of Jesus. In other words, you better get used to boasting about Jesus because when you stand before the creator, holy God someday, there'll be one word on your lips. If you can say it, and that will be the word, Jesus. It's because of Jesus, not my own accomplishments. It's not my own pedigree. It's not my own nationality. It's not. God, accept me because of the work of Jesus. It is self-righteous people who boast in flesh. Genuine believers are Jesus people. They rejoice in the Lord. So when you go to the grocery store this week, boast about Jesus. When you go to the mall, Jesus. Go to work, go to school, people should hear Jesus. Our rejoicing, our confidence in him. And in verse 7, uh, one final verse here, we see genuine believers exchange the works of their flesh for Christ. Verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We'll talk more about this next week. In God's sovereign plan. But Paul basically takes all of these things, these seven descriptions he just gives, Gave, and he, he bundles them all up. And he uses an accounting metaphor when he says, you know, all those things I used to boast in and think would be means that would get me accepted by God. I'm going to wrap them all up together, and now I count all of those things I used to think as gains. I'm going to move them from the gains column over here to the loss column. Their deficit, their loss. And the reason he did that was as the text says, because of Jesus. This text ends here. It gives the one and only reason that Paul decided to make an exchange of all of the means of his self-righteousness for God's righteousness. And the reason he made the exchange was because of Jesus. We're just getting ready to celebrate the Lord's table this morning. But perhaps you've never made that exchange before. Perhaps you're counting in, in something else, something internal. My good works, my inner light, my activities, my obedience, my righteousness, my religious heritage. time to count all of that as loss in exchange for the righteousness that's found 
in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for our time together this morning. I pray that you would use it. I pray that you would work. I pray that believers would not get distracted from boasting and taking confidence in Christ. And Lord, I pray that unbelievers who perhaps are blinded, blinded by their own things this morning, counting on trusting in some inherent good or some internal desire that they have to be accepted by you. Lord, I pray that you would help them see that that is damning. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. May they see that it's only in Jesus' work that we can be forgiven. We pray that you would do that for the honor and glory of your own name. In Jesus' name, amen.